Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours by profession. May they be yours by practice. I'm praying now, Father, that you would anoint us all. We are not spectators, Lord. We are the actors on the stage of the cosmos. And I'm praying, Lord, from the prompts that are in your word, verbalized through your servant, may each of us move as we see the shepherd moving in front of us. Stay close, Lord, and may we stay close to you. Hear us now, I pray, and guide us, I ask, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to talk with you about relationships. I've entitled my message, Patriarchs, Prophets, and the Parental Christ. I was visiting with someone recently, and I reminded myself that for all the trauma my mother put me through, I never doubted her love. And if you're lucky, you have parents that put you through some trauma too. Not the kind of trauma that you shouldn't go through, but the kind that you should. When a mom and a dad are doing their job, the first thing they do is create security for the child. But that security is established in the depth of their person and the depth of their relationship. When those things are there, the child will have to make decisions along the way if the parents are real, if the parents are genuine, if they're trustworthy. So from those earliest days when my mother made me go back to the store because I took that little root beer barrel off the counter without paying for it, to the moments when she called me out of class as a sixth grader because I didn't make my bed and then she did the worst thing and sent me back to make it and then she sent me back to tell everybody why I went home. <laughs> From those moments when the crowd of my, my neighborhood friends who were foes, whom I had mouthed off too much, she said, all right, you can fight him, but one at a time, no ganging up on him. My mother required me to grow. She understood that I would have to face my self-made problems someday, so why not start now? And in the process, she developed me for an adult life that had some confidence in it, that had some self-awareness, that knew where the lines of the relationships ought to, be, ought to be drawn. And so I have a great debt of gratitude to my mother, who is indeed one of the most preeminent heroes in my life, who actually prepared me to deal in a very fragile world. Now listen, truth has been surrounded by falsehood. There is a siege that has been laid on truth. And slowly, the devil is surrounding all who hang on to the idea that there is a God and there is absolute truth in this word. And a society that's very fragile. And I want to co combine some things right now. Your relationships can never be strong and secure or they can be fragile. The more false of the ideas you're building your relationship on, the more fragile they are. And you're going to see in the Bible, and you've probably experienced it in life already, when you have a fragile idea and you're hanging on to it, all you need is for the truth to start to get close, and you get edgy. And what's worse is when somebody with confidence speaks up and says, that's false. If you're not going to abandon what's false, you have to attack what's true. And that's what's going on in our society right now. So the word fragile and superficial should go together. I did not have a fragile mother. She had no qualms about understanding what her responsibility was to me. And you know what? I grew up with confidence because I had a mother whose life, whose parenting practice was built on truth. Those early days when I was a baby, 
She held me. I could hear her heart beating. This was security. But I want to tell you, all along the way, I never doubted my mother's response to anything. My mother clearly intoned in my mind, I understood the cadence of her parental journey very early on. When she said to me, if you get in trouble at school, you're going to be in trouble at home, she was defining a relationship. And she basically said, that person is standing in my place as an authority in your life. Shape up or you're going to be in trouble. When she had that bar of lava on my lips and on my tongue, she was saying, cultured people and people with the last name Kelly don't talk like that. And as I'm anxiously trying to spit the residues of that hand soap out of my mouth, I got the message, but I never doubted my mother's love. I did not, I was not raised with a fragile feminine identity. I was raised with a woman who understood that her children would need to be strong and confident if they were going to survive with functional relationships in this world. Now this morning, I want all of you to start thinking about your relationships and how they're defined. Some of your relationships are so fragile, however much favor as people have for you, it's going to do them or you no good except in the temporary. A fragile relationship is usually fragile for a reason. It's because it's never been tested. It's like a muscle. Or it's been allowed to atrophy because dysfunction has grown in and nobody's done anything about the dysfunction. Or it's fragile because you haven't shared enough time and experience together to know each other. And by the way, the devil is out to make the church fragile so he can run right over society and take everybody's eternal life away from them. He's doing it by making sure we don't even get to first base in knowing the slightest little thing about each other. So all we do is we gather. You're sitting in a church right now. You're in the right place. If you're not looking at the back of the head of the person in front of you, you might be looking up at me. That's good. You're going to learn something about me in this sermon. And you're hopefully going to learn something much more important about God's Word. They are intersected because God has chosen to call me to this place and the message is flowing through me from His Word. But how well are your relationships defined? You are a very blessed person if your parents have not worn their parental identity on their sleeve and they're worried about what you're going to say about them when you grow up. I've had children who for phases of their life probably didn't have a whole lot of good to say about me. But you need to know that when they get past their immaturity, their fragility, and their attachment to falsehood, which this society is metering out with all kinds of confidence and pedigrees behind it, it doesn't matter to me if you have a lot of letters behind your name. Get as many as you can as a consecrated Christian and use them as a tool. But when those letters are in in opposition and antagonism to the principles and practices of the Word or the collective wisdom of six millennia of life, they don't mean very much. And we have sought to redefine what parenting is. We have sought to redefine what family is. And in the process, there is this growing corporate social pathology. In other words, society is starting to come to the brink of implosion. And what about all this uh, adolescent, young adult, middle-aged anxiety and depression? People who feel like they're being victimized by society, they don't understand that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's built on truth. They can run to it and be strong. Yes, my mother made me do a lot of things, the chief of which was go to a church school. She did not understand that in doing so, she was laying the future groundwork for a change in our relationship. Because my mother, who had been truly the one in charge in my life, in my home, She put me in that church school, and all of a sudden, I realized there's a higher authority. Now, authority was a big deal to my mother. (laughs) 
And oh, am I ever so glad. But when I met Jesus Christ, she moved into second place along with my father as Jesus Christ moved into first. Can you say amen? Every child needs to make that decision. Every young adult comes to the place where they have to say, this isn't about mom and dad anymore. For me, there were some challenges in our home. For me, I could taste and see that the Lord is good. And I understand right away that he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. My love for Christ did nothing but elevate my love for my mother. But we did start to have moments where the Lordship of Christ ran into the authority of mom. Along the way, I wouldn't have known, couldn't have known, she did not know, that eventually, not only would the relationship change, but she would go from being my leader to where I would move into a relationship where Christ was preparing me to be a leader of people and be a blessing to her, hopefully, as she made a journey back to Christ. Everybody gets old if they're lucky. Some, are pe some people listening to me right here might be old and only be 20 years old because you might not have but a year left. I want everybody to stop and think about this. I'm here dealing in the commodities of truth today. I'm not relating to you like I have a fragile relationship with you. You all came here of your own free will. You came because either God prompted you or you wanted to. I'm not here today to have a superficial encounter with you, but I'm here to tell you the farther our society moves away from truth, the more superficial it gets. And the more superficial it gets, the more vicious it gets when truth is brought up with confidence. The meaner somebody has to be because they don't like what you said is only proof that they are not humble enough to allow the living Christ to lead them on to higher ground. Now, if I make a social faux pas, a mistake... And I'm rude or I'm inconsiderate or I'm discourteous in some way. That's different. But when in the free interchange of ideas, you say something or I say something and my initial response is anger, I better do some serious introspection as to why. Because falsehood has no comeback except anger. But truth has the ability to disagree without emotional venom. And I want you to think about this. The truthful person, and I want to couch it in the terms of forgiveness... If you've never known forgiveness and you've not embraced truth, when somebody brings something up that's wrong, it's immediate condemnation. And I deal with people for whom if their parent or their pastor or their teacher or their spouse or whatever relationship it is, but let's use mine, pastor parishioner relationship. If I say something's not right, immediately they feel condemnation. Now listen, we're in a communion with each other and I make mistakes, and occasionally someone, maybe more than occasionally, needs to say to me, Pastor, I think you got that wrong. If I'm humble enough to want to hear and know truth, then because I'm in a saving relationship with Christ, where I'm no longer under condemnation, but I'm under grace, I can embrace truth without emotional antagonism in response to the person who's talking to me. Jesus did not come to condemn people. But he did come to judge right and wrong. And the truth of the matter is we get to decide if we're on a liberty-loving journey or if I'm on a journey where I want a pseudo-security, a pseudo-assurance while I make my way up to that colossal moment of judgment where I find out it was all worthless. This morning, friends, let's define some relationships. What does the word stranger mean to you? What does the word friend mean? 
mean to you? Are we moving towards the circle of the bullseye on emotional intimacy? What does the word brother mean to you? Now, I want to tell you something. When I sit down on an airplane and I'm by myself, I'm sitting by strangers. There's a different social contract with a stranger. When it comes to relating to somebody who shares a measure of blood type or DNA with me, at least common parentage, that's a different relationship. The truth of the matter is, in some places, to follow Christ in truth may cost you your life, and that journey takes you from being stranger to church member to brother or sister, and that journey is stronger as brother or sister in Christ than it ever was with anybody who shares the same two sets of originators, parents. Define your relationship to this church right now. For a lot of you, the place is full of strangers. And the devil likes that. Because in a fragile society, you can't do serious spiritual lifting. In a fragile home, you can't handle serious problems. Dysfunction reigns because in our society today, making sure we all feel good on the journey to self-destruction is more important than figuring out where the journey ultimately is headed. I'm appealing to you. When Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 10, 24, and 25, don't forsake the assembling together, there's a reason. And that's because the kind of business we do to stay on the path of life is a corporate journey. It's a group journey. We need somebody to say, hey, we're not acting with very much faith. Or hey, you're falling in love with the world. This matters more than this. It's like that person in one of my churches years ago that on Monday night from September to January wouldn't show up at a board meeting even though they held a leadership post because they weren't going to miss dun, 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 dun. You know, Monday night football. Sorry for the poor rendition. It was a pretty poor showing. Somebody needed to sit down and say, you know, being a head deacon in this church involves a different kind of fidelity. This morning, friends, I'm going to show you that there's a lot of people that aren't reading their Bibles because they don't even know who God is. I'm going to show you that Protestantism is set on keeping your spirituality at an infantile level where you don't have the ability to have anybody bump into you, let alone someone sharpen iron with you because iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another man's countenance. Same chapter. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. The walk of Christ could not leave you in fragility. He loved so much. Let's talk about the basis of how we redefine relationships. Number one is love. He loved people so much that he could say to a Canaanite woman from the area of Tyre and Sidon, he could say to her as she came along imploring him, Lord, have mercy on me, he could say, it's not good to take the food off the table and give it to the dogs. But he was so committed to loving the human race and, and he was teaching his disciples a lesson while he was engaging this woman. She became the instrumentality, the catalyst for teaching his disciples about love and she won't give up. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs. And finally, Jesus can't take it anymore. And the woman has seen through the charade and Jesus turns to her and he said, they're saying, send her away. And Jesus does send her away with everything she wants. And what about that woman that's lived with five men, now with number six, Christ is number seven. He says, go, go get your husband. 
He knew very well she didn't have a husband. Why would Jesus do this? Jesus was not going to leave this lady with some superficial blessing when he understood that the fragility of her relationship, even with the Samaritans, she was a bad Samaritan, the fragility of her relationship, even with the Samaritans, could change because she was going to have a deep relationship with God. She, she was willing to make the journey. I'm just a poor, wayfaring stranger. She was willing to take the next step. I'm going to tell him the truth. And when she did, she didn't realize she was stepping into a redefined relationship. She then wanted to not let him get much closer. So Jerusalem, Samaria, Mount, Mount Gerizim, Mount Moriah, where do we worship? Jesus says, that's not really what it's about. Are you going to worship me in spirit and truth? She says, yes. She takes another step. And finally, she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus does for her what he does for almost nobody else, except he's going to do it in the message this morning. He says, that's me. This kind of love is the foundation of going from fragile to firm, of going from superficial to substantial. And this kind of relationship can only be had as we encounter the living Christ. Christ wants us to encounter each other. The church is falling down because it can't stand up with truthful dialogues inside of it without losing its Christianity. And that's no Christ to serve at all. Christ calls us to a relationship with truth to where a different idea can be discussed and we go away making a decision, either walking in the light, following the narrow way, or going with the masses. Lots of accolades and affirmation from everybody, but a conscience that won't set me free. That was Saul after he held the coat for Stephen. Stephen's last stand. But it was Saul every night he laid down in bed. His conscience was bothering him. All he could see was the peace and hear the words on the face. Words from the mouth of Stephen. He saw Jesus standing up. Fragile relationships are not to exist in our families and they are not to exist in our churches. Now you may have one. And you may be in a church that's so very, very fragile. You might be in a situation that's very fragile. But there is one assurance that as we wisely, lovingly, patiently pursue truth, fragility and superficiality will give way to something that's substantive and strong. And by the way, friends, that's what you want when you're in crisis. Take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the Gospel of John. John is all about who is Jesus. How do you define him? In John chapter 1, John's purpose is going to be to find Jesus as God, nothing else. Right out the gate, the Bible tells us, in the beginning was the Word. That Word was made flesh. Nothing was made unless the Word made it. We go all the way through the Gospel of John from beginning to end, and what we see is John is establishing the fact that Jesus is not an ordinary man. Jesus is truly the God-man. When we get to John chapter 2, well, let's not leave John chapter 1. They rejected Jesus because the light came into the darkness. They love darkness rather than light. John chapter 2, Jesus is the wedding feast. Praise the Lord for celebrations. They run out of wine. It's an embarrassing moment. You invite this many guests, you maybe get more, maybe they enjoy what you're offering, and pretty soon you're out of food. Food is the center of the relationship. In this case, they were out of the wine. His mother comes to him 
And of all the miracles to include, this one is precious because it takes the ordinary dynamic of human life and a crisis and transitions it into the celebration of, of a God-infused presence of, in, in this uh, marriage feast. Jesus turns the water into wine and everybody knows this was no ordinary encounter. Mary knew who he was. The world did not. We come to John chapter 3. A prestigious man is trying to hang on to the respect of his, his uh, colleagues in the assembly of the 70, the Sanhedrin. He doesn't really want to be seen. He slips out at night, crosses the Kidron Valley, comes up to the Mount of Olives and finds Jesus. And what does he say to Jesus? Good teacher. And Jesus, in effect, says, I'm not just a good teacher. He says, you need to be born again. He doesn't understand what born again means. Don't be surprised if some of the most elemental components of Christianity, people with prestigious positions, don't understand because you don't understand those things by position. You understand them by following the Holy Spirit in an encounter with truth that both arranges you and assures you. Yes, you are guilty, and yes, you are loved, and yes, you can be saved. But this kind of relationship with Nicodemus was what Jesus had, and Nicodemus didn't go away totally surrendered. You come to John chapter 4, it's that woman at the well. It's another dynamic about who am I to you. Fragility fades away when you encounter the living Christ because no matter what anybody says about you, you've got this assurance. God knows me, he loves me, he forgives me. There's no need for fragility in a relationship between Christian and Christian except for one thing, darkness hates light. And when light comes into the arena, darkness either runs or it fights. And when it fights, it's mean. It doesn't deal with the issue or the idea, it deals with the person. Because we are people who need to be in reasonably safe and socialized communion. We want, we want to be connected. So when you run into falsehood, falsehood's got to rear its, its hair has to stand up on the back of its neck. Its eyes have to narrow. It has to growl. It has to look like it's going to bite so that you'll leave it alone. Whether it's personal or whether it's ideological or theological, that's how error works. And when you don't live that way, you don't have to be afraid. Ideas fall down in the presence of light. It's a fact. But that's not how it was working here. John chapter 8. Now, this is one of the longest conversations recorded in the New Testament between Jesus and anybody. So John takes time. We have chapter-long conversations, but now we're going to see a two-chapter dynamic in Christ. We'll go quickly. Chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. 8, verse 12, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but he will have the light of life. The Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony's not true. And Jesus said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. There's a definition on a relationship. But you do not know where you came from, where I came from, or where I'm going. You judge according to your experience, according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who also sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? 
And this becomes a key definition, a key identity point in these two chapters. Where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would have known my father also. Skip down to verse 28. It says, so Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. Now go down to verse 31. This is a very important verse. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. So please get the definition of their dialogue right. Get the picture frame right. Jesus in these next chapters is dealing with people who at one point in time had believed in them, in him. Is he saying, is John the author saying they had quit? No. But he's saying up to this point in time, yes, they believe. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Now listen to me, friends. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger. I'm on a journey. In this chapter, we're going to read about Abraham. If there's one thing you need to know about Abraham is that he followed God no matter where God led him, even when he didn't know where that was. We're going to read about the prophets. We're going to have Jesus quoting Moses or quoting God at Mount Sinai at the burning bush. When Moses asked for a name, God says, I am that I am. We're going to go from patriarchs to prophets. And what I want you to see is that in a relationship with Christ, where truth is enshrined, liberty giving truth, fragility fades out of relationships because of love and a commitment to what's right. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, yes, you were born into the Seventh-day Adventist church. May the Lord bless you. I wish that I could have had the privilege of being raised by two Seventh-day Adventist Christians. I love my mother. I love my father. But man, if you were raised by two people that loved Jesus and knew this truth, you started out on a journey that was way in advance of me. But it doesn't matter where you started, there comes a point in time when you decide if you're going to keep going. Jesus is the shepherd. He calls us on to higher ground. He calls us into the narrow way. I think a lot of Adventists have forgotten this. Jesus said the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. James will write that true religion is to take care of the widows and the orphan and keep oneself unspotted from the world. That last phrase is not talked about inside proper Christian culture these days because it's much nicer to be cozied up to the world and still have some assurance that heaven is yours too. This is a journey. We have to continue in the way. For some of us, we've taken an awful long detour. God is calling us into a deepening experience. Do you not understand that the world as it was in the days of Babylon when wrong will be enthroned and power will be in the hands? How is it that it says... In once to every man and nation. It basically it says that error is on the throne and truth is on the scaffold. But the scaffold sways the future. God is in charge. But we are headed to a point in time in which everything that can be shaken will be shaken. The journey of following Jesus is a journey of building on the rock and we will not be shaken. Jesus answered them, verse 33, he said, we're Abraham's descendants. Now remember, this is all with people who have believed. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Listen, friends, they have been enslaved in Egypt. They have been enslaved in Babylon. And they were currently under the iron monarchy of Rome. They were blind to all the obvious things and the responsibility that comes for the situation they were in. 
Jesus says in verse 34, truly, truly, I say unto you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus wasn't deviating. This is a parental Christ. He's, I hate to say, I almost said he's like my mother. My mother was practicing a measure of Christ's love in the way she raised me. The prophetic voice was there. This is Jesus operating as the chief of the prophets and he's not backing off the liberty-giving fact that he's arrived to set us free and the refusal to accept his journeying onward is the lostness of our souls. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, verse 37, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. Here we are. We're back to the fragility. Hang on to the old ways, the customs. Move forward with the truth. But if you don't like what Jesus is saying, but you're open to at least thinking about it, you don't have to be in the posture of plotting for his life. I speak the things, verse 38, which I've seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, here we go. This is going to get ugly now. Abraham's our father. Jesus said he already knew that. Jesus said, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Follow on. Verse 40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. All right, here we go. You're doing the deeds of your father. By implication, they're getting it. And rather than stop the conversation and go home and think about it, they're going to leverage their position of power and they're going to embarrass Jesus best they can. And they said to him, at least we know who our daddy is. You don't get it. Because in today's society, this is not a big deal. But I want to tell you, in the days of Christ, with the lineage-keeping Jews, knowing who the patriarchy of your family was, knowing you had a dad. By the way, you read in the Old Testament, a child born out of wedlock is excised from the communion of the faithful for ten generations. Why? Child's fault? No way. That's God saying everybody deserves a dad and don't you mess it up by playing around. And they're taking advantage of this right now and they're saying to Jesus, look, you not only, well, let's just let them use their own words. You're born in sin. We have a daddy. We have a father. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if, you were, if, if God were your father, you'd love me for I proceeded forth from and have come from God. For I've not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying to you? It's because you cannot hear my word. Okay, let's pause again. Why couldn't they hear his word? Because they already loved something else. They already had made up their mind and had a cushy, cozy place. Of course, they were at the top of the religious pecking order. When you fall in love with this world, or the wrong person, by the way, hate to say it, have plenty of experience in dealing with people for whom this happens. You can't pry somebody's hands off that for love nor money. They can't listen 
because they love something else. They won't listen because their hearts are connected to a worldly religion that has actually institutionalized wrong. Verse 44, you're of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Listen, friends, what is going on here? Is this an out of control argument with the son of God? Or is this the most fierce parental moment you're ever going to find where the grace of parenthood is hanging in the game for an arrogant, in this case, family member or members? Some of you have never raised anybody who's wrestled with rebellion. (laughs) Unfortunately, in my fatherhood of four, I've got some experience. Do you just wash your hands and kick him to the curb? The Bible says there's more hope for a fool than somebody that's wise in their own eyes. Society is teaching our kids that they know more than everybody else. And in some arenas, they do know more than everybody else. It's just not the critical ones. Life is the great educator. Jesus, the author of all life, had brought this conversation to the point at which it's in. How important is the truth to Jesus? How much love does he have for these who are arrogant and out of the way? Jesus is showing us in this chapter what a parental Christ looks like. We must not remain in an infantile or adolescent dynamic or definition of a relationship with God, with the authority figures in our lives, our parents, our teachers. In the end, society today is looking to codify dysfunction and establish a sense of well-being built on anything that you choose. Let's skip down to the end of the story. The Jews said to him in verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. They called him a Samaritan and demon-possessed in the in-between verses. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. He's made the assertion that he has a familiarity. And the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me of whom you say he's our God. So there's a witness for Christ. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I did not know him, I would be a liar just like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Remember, they had believed on him, folks. These weren't the enemies of the enemies. Truly, I say unto you, before Abraham, and some of your versions don't say was born, but that is clearly the implied statement. Before Abraham was born, I am. We just went from Abraham to Moses. Jesus grabs confidently onto both of them. And he says, They have their existence and role in Israelite society because of me. They picked up stones to throw at him, but he slipped away. But the conversation continues because on the way out of the temple, 
there was a man who was there who was born blind. Think Peter on the way into the temple in the early part of Acts. Well, now Jesus is on his way out of the temple and the commentators in general agree. These two things are right smack up against each other because they happened one after the other. And so he is on the way out of the temple. Things got pretty twisted in Jesus' day too. Don't be discouraged. Our society has, has, has thrown a mountain heap of its own wisdom together and called it the pinnacle of truth. Same thing, it happened back then, only they were using the Bible a lot more. And so they're on their way out and the disciples look at Jesus who has just left this intense conversation. They say, Rabbi, teacher, Jesus, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Do you really think for a moment that even Christianity's worst enemy would teach that somehow God actually condemned people in the womb? I mean, it's such a preposterous and implausible and illogical construct for even a decent human being, let alone for God. And Jesus said, it's not that. But I'm going to show you the glory of God. And so as he engages in this conversation, reminding us again that he's the light of the world in verse 5, he spits on the ground, he makes clay out of it, and he sends this blind man into a firestorm of trouble. Now I want you to see, it's Abraham who made the journey. It's Moses who stood on the mountain. It's the prophets who stood up for truth. And now he's going to send this man, born blind, into the maelstrom of, of hatred and animosity. He's going to let him become the point man for arguing with the Jews. So he puts clay on his hand and then puts it on the man's eyes and he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which by translation means sent. Nothing's accidental here. There's a journey for all of us. There's a journey for you. There's a journey for me. And there was a journey for this man. And so he goes to the pool of Siloam. He's all by himself. Maybe there's a few spectators. He washes the clay off his eyes. And you know what? He's never seen. He now sees. Amazing. People on the way are, are confounded. They don't know what to do with this. It happened on a Sabbath. And pretty soon he's at the center of a theological discussion. Should this have happened or should it not? And then once they, they had a real good idea of who had done it. And pretty soon it's like, well, whoever did this has to be a sinner because this happened on Sabbath. And so they bring him. Verse 14 says, now it was a Sabbath, chapter 9, on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And so they kept asking him, how did you receive your sight? And he said, verse 15, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. And the Pharisees, some of them were saying, this man's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division. Well, the conversation goes back and forth and they even bring in his parents. Now, I want you to think about this. I want to come back to what I said. When I'm in a saving relationship with Jesus and I'm surrendered to the truth, you can tell me I'm wrong and my human pride might rise up because I'm as human as anybody else. My wounded ego could rise up. A wrong sense of, of who I am might resist. But if I know I'm in a secure relationship with Christ and my real goal is only to follow the light that's revealed to me, I'm okay. My ideas don't have to be the right one. And some of my choices are the wrong one. But when I know that I'm in a safe relationship with Christ and that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way and though he falls, he shall not be utterly cast down. So I stumbled. I've got my hand in the hand of Christ. I'm getting up. He's dusting me off and I'm going. 
But when you're not in that kind of relationship and somebody says to you, you're going the wrong way, whoa, watch out, bear the teeth, show the fangs, let the venom roll. Jesus is going to put this man into this kind of relationship now. He just had a showdown with the the Pharisees. Now this man's going to have it. So they go through all of this rigmarole. They call in his parents. And look what his parents do. They choose to remain in a relationship of condemnation with the institutional church. They would rather keep their friends and their status by just falling in the line than experiencing the new definition of freedom that Jesus just gave this man. I want you to think about it. It's perverse. There's a reason the pig goes back and wallows in its mud hole and the dog returns to its vomit. There's something about humanity that gets a little bit comfortable with its assigned role. Christ said, that's not the gospel. This man nor his parents are guilty. I'm going to show you the liberating power of my ability to set him free on the inside now. And so the parents leave him behind. He's pretty much left on his own. And finally, we come to this final little showdown between him. Verse 26. It's going to be the second, and then it's going to roll into the third time. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered and said to them, verse 27, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Wow, there's a lot in that sentence. In one short moment, he knows what truth is, and you can too. They reviled him and said, look at there we go, the fragility of their, their, their relationship to truth. They can't just leave him alone with his own opinion. They've got to do something to him. The devil never lets you go free without you paying a price. And by the way, Jesus doesn't stop you from paying that price. He's measured it. He knows what you can endure. When you go through something like this, he doesn't take all the pain out of the bite. He doesn't take all the sting out of the rejection. Here this man is, and he's standing up for what he knows is liberty-giving life from a truth teacher. They mocked him. They reviled him. You're his disciple, but we'll be the disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and he said to them, and I love this translation right now, New American Standard. This is so powerful. I can almost hear him saying it. I mean, he's, he is, he's lower than the low. He's a sinner from his first breath based on their definition. No wonder they revile him. But he says, well, here, verse 30, well, here is an amazing thing. <laughs> you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't hear sinners. But if anyone's God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anybody had their eyes opened of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I rest my case. And they answered him and said, You were born entirely in sins and you're teaching us, get out of here. So they put him out. I want you to be that man. I want you to be that poor wayfaring stranger because before we meet Jesus, every earthly human support is going to be removed. You know why? Same reason Zacharias went nine months without talking. He needed to discover that God the Father was the first and best one to withhold communion. And while he could not use his lips and his tongue to talk, he could commune with the Father. When we see Jesus coming face to face, 
we will have determined that God was an ever-present help in trouble and we didn't even need to be afraid. I want you to be this man. Everybody kind of got away from him. He's sitting outside the temple. He can see. He's followed the impress of the inner witness. He knows truth because he's not resistant to it. He's willing to obey it so he can know it. And he's sitting there thinking about what to do next. I made a lot of trouble for my mom and dad today. I can't go home. I made all the Pharisees mad at me. There'll be no church dole. If ever somebody had the weight of the world on their shoulders at the same time they had the joy of a miraculous healing, I mean, we need to take some time and think about these things. Don't read the Bible in a hurry. Slow down and be the one. You call alone. And all of a sudden, a shadow falls on him. And he looks up. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's looking into the face of God. But he doesn't know it yet. And he says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe? And Jesus says, you're looking at him and you're listening to him right now. And he slides off that stone ledge and he doesn't care who's watching. Friends, you've got to get to the place where you don't care what everybody else thinks about you and Jesus. He's been kicked out of the church. He was an amusing moment in the dynamics of church administration and discipline. But I want to tell you, while he's kneeling in the dust outside of the temple that day, he does not care. His heart has been set free because he's followed the truth and he can not only see physically, he can see spiritually because his heart is open to the lordship of his maker. To be in any other position is to be in the wrong position. To think you're going to get from where you are now to there without paying a little bit of a price socially for all of those who still wear the moniker of Pharisee. And by the way, friends, give the conservative church a break. It doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal. Pharisaism is a function of an established idea which will not change. A principle Christianity which it resists. The truth is the same spirit and truth Jesus talked about in John chapter 4 and it's calling us today. So if he's calling you to stand up for something that's going to make you persona non grata, go right ahead. Because if he's not God, you might as well figure it out now as to wait to when you can't buy, you can't sell, and you can't breathe. This is the advantage of my upbringing. Very little parental safety net to fall back on. I needed it for ministry. I almost said I once presided over, but that's the wrong word. I once was stuck dealing with a horrific interchurch member adulterous affair. Actually, a coworker of mine was the victim.
little kids. At night when they would pray, they would pray sorrow for their causative dynamic in the breakup of their mommy and daddy's home. Is there, a, is there an evil one or what? Your relationship isn't good. It won't get better by finding somebody else. It'll get better by finding Jesus so you can find a new person and the one you promised to be with. The new couple had redefined everybody's relationship through rejection and abandonment. But they thought, this will get tough for some of you, but they thought they could maintain normal relationship with everybody else in the church. So they came to church and sat over here on this side about two-thirds of the way back. It wasn't in this church. I mean, this is really weird. Somehow the wires had gotten so crossed that they thought they could put everybody through the emotional relational meat grinder and come to church and everybody was just going to be okay with it. But one day the head elder, praise the Lord for these courageous elders, found them after the service and said, you can't come to church like that here. Oh, some of you are thinking nobody can say that to anybody. Well, you're wrong. And some of you have always had a very low level of relational functioning that's based pretty much like the world on feeling and anything can go. And the main thing is to make sure nobody feels bad. What I'm here to tell you, it's hard to be told your daddy's a liar and the devil and not do a little thinking about why it was said so powerfully and pointedly. They didn't like it. Fortunately, it was a church that did more than come to church with each other. They were quite united. Not completely. I had somebody up higher than me in the ranks of the established church who did not understand that it was not their role to get in the way of the local church trying to mete out a parental grace. Thank you, no thank you. There is a moment when you run into the rejection of your family that says, the Kellys don't do this, or this congregation doesn't stand for this. There is a moment when you run into that, when there is a chance you might break it off. You might have the scales drop from your eyes and say, oh, I'm smashing that little boy's heart. Oh, I'm crushing that mommy's heart. Oh, I'm breaking that daddy's heart. It's not your job to save anybody from the parental Christ. And it is your job to practice the parental Christ. Now, if your relationship is not defined close enough to do it, then don't do it. But God forbid that our relationships would always stay so fragile 
that nobody can ever do it. Ellen White in Our Father Kez says, Jesus would have us understand the love of the Father. And he seeks to draw us to him by presenting his parental grace. He would have the whole field of our vision filled with the perfection of God's character. Why did Jesus send the Israelites back into the wilderness for 40 years? Tell me why. Vindictive, arbitrary, capricious God? No. Because in that 40-year journey, there was still a chance. They might get what 10 plagues, a divided Red Sea, a cloud by day, a fire by night, food by morning, and water out of a rock. There was a chance. It was the only way he could save them. I want to leave you with two things. Number one, the Bible says in the book of Romans, we are not to be conformed to this world. It's time for us to go back to the scriptures and take our cues from the living Christ. It's back for us to, it's for us to go beyond the infantile and the adolescent measure of grace, statement of grace. I want to tell you something. When Jesus stayed in the game with those Pharisees long enough for them to hate him and want to pick up the stones and kill him, that was an act of grace. He was letting them see in their own heart where the fragility of falsehood would lead them, destroy an innocent man for doing nothing more than telling you you're wrong. That was an act of parental grace. He followed the loving truth all the way to Gethsemane. And Peter, on the night before he died, says, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus didn't cower and say, I just need somebody to love me. Jesus said, no, Peter. Before the sun comes up tomorrow morning, you're going to know something about yourself you don't know tonight. But remember this. I've prayed for you. I never doubted my mother's love. Why should I doubt God's? And why should I allow my relationships with him, his people, to remain in a fragile mode. We have to share some experiences together. We have to share the love of Christ together. We have to bear the cross. Adventists share a special bond. Why do Adventists share a special bond? Because Jesus calls them all the way to the cross in every part of their life. Your eating, your entertainment, your dressing, your talking, your time. Everything. That's a special fraternity. So as Adventism backs away from that special fraternity, what should you expect? You should expect an expected fragility. 
I can be instantly close with somebody who's made that journey. I can barely know them, but know them in Christ. And they're at home with me, and I'm at home with them. The goal is to get us all home with our Heavenly Father, who Christ chose to represent the parental Christ. Please, I implore you today, think about how your relationships are defined. Move from fragility to fidelity based on a loving truth. Do not operate from fear, operate from love. Do not reject the impress of the Holy Spirit or the people that love you enough to amplify its voice. Do not replicate in worldliness or conservativeness, whatever it might be, do not replicate the experience of the leading Jews of Christ's day. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. The nice Jesus could leave him alone. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? You see, this gospel of John ends with the parental Christ. Is he rubbing his face in it? I told you so. Or is he giving him a chance to get back what he lost and to show he now knew himself differently? Lord, you know everything. I love you. May we love him the same way. Amen.